From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden is heading to Poland. As we approach one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have the details. And waiting is a part of life, but a new study finds that the rich have to wait much less. Plus, a new documentary series looks at the life of surfer-turned-infamous jewel thief, Murph the Surf. Oh, there's a lot of crime, and he doesn't want it to be a crime story. He wants it to be a story about a jewel heist and a handsome young guy who found salvation through the Lord. All that and more. It's Sunday, February 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. At this weekend's security conference in Germany, international leaders expressed widespread support for Ukraine, including contributing more military aid in its fight against Russia. The U.S. meantime suspects China has been helping support Russia in its invasion. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's top diplomat and says he warned him of consequences if Beijing is supplying material support to Moscow. We've been watching this very closely to date. We have seen Chinese companies, and of course in China there's really no distinction between private companies and the state. We have seen them provide non-lethal support to Russia for use in Ukraine. The concern that we have now is based on information we have that they're considering providing lethal support. And we've made very clear to them that that causes a serious problem for us and in our relationship. President Biden leaves for Poland tomorrow to commemorate the first year of the war. For its part, China is warning the U.S. of consequences if it escalates the controversy over the balloon sent by Beijing. The U.S. military shot it down after it traversed over the U.S., calling it a spy balloon. China maintains it was for civilian purposes and that it blew off course. The U.S. and South Korean militaries held joint exercises today. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul that it follows North Korea's first intercontinental ballistic missile launch since November. The U.S. and South Korea mobilized F-35 fighters and at least one B-1B supersonic bomber. The exercises were in response to the North's test launch of a Hwasong-15 ICBM the day before. The missile was launched at a steep angle. It traveled some 614 miles east, but reached a maximum altitude of 3,584 miles. Also Sunday, the North's leader Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong, warned of an overwhelming response to any hostile acts against Pyongyang. The U.S. and South Korea are scheduled to hold tabletop exercises at the Pentagon on Wednesday, simulating a North Korean nuclear attack. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Former President Jimmy Carter is spending his final days at home in Plains, Georgia. As NPR's Grace Newton reports, Carter is receiving hospice care there. At 98 years old, Carter is the longest-living former U.S. president. And according to the Carter Center, the former peanut farmer-turned-politician decided after a series of short hospital stays that he would receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. The former president has suffered from a series of health challenges in recent years, including cancer and a broken hip. Carter was the 39th U.S. president, serving from 1977 to 1981. He grew up in rural Georgia, where he served as governor before defeating incumbent Gerald Ford in the 1976 presidential election. Carter dedicated his last decades to public service, including founding the Carter Center, which focuses on fighting disease and promoting peace. Grace Newton, NPR News. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The air quality is back to normal in Braintree, but a fire at a waste treatment facility there prompted city officials to call on nearby residents to close their windows Thursday night. The fire broke out at the Clean Harbor's waste disposal at around 11 p.m. Hazmat teams were also on the scene to conduct air quality tests. Gene O'Brien Bobak lives about two miles from the fire. I didn't have any clue that anything was going on until I got up the next morning and went on social media. Meanwhile, the town had recommended people shut their windows and stay inside. Bobag says she thinks the city should have used reverse 911 to notify residents because not everyone is on social media. But she says she was told by city officials that it was too late in the evening to make such a call. This is a big weekend for New England's bird lovers. Through tomorrow, bird enthusiasts of all ages can join an annual event known as the Great Backyard Bird Count. Organized by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Birds Canada, and the National Audubon Society, it's an opportunity to help scientists gather data on bird populations around the country and the world. Joan Walsh is the Ornithology Chair at Mass Audubon, and she says anyone with a smartphone and access to the outdoors can participate. It's not something that's just for the expert. It's for anyone who enjoys a bird. You can be part of a worldwide documentation of what birds you see those four days, which that's that's really cool. Depending on the year, late February can be a great time to spot winter birds such as snowy owls and razorbills before they head north for the summer. If you're driving on Morrissey Boulevard in Boston this morning, then be aware of potential flooding. The Department of Conservation and Recreation anticipates lane or road closures between Freeport Street and UMass Boston starting around 10 a.m. when high tide hits. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, clouds, a slight chance of showers, and highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thanks for joining us. It's a busy weekend for world diplomacy with more to come this week. And here at home, a historic life is winding down where it started, in Plains, Georgia. NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason is here to talk about that and more. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So there's the annual Munich Security Conference this weekend, and and President Biden is heading to Poland tomorrow to mark one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What stands out to you? Well, two things. First, how steadfast and united the West has been to support Ukraine with weapons, with sanctions against Russia, but also how fragile that unity and resolve could be over time as the war drags on with no negotiations between Russia and Ukraine in sight. In the U.S., there are many Republicans in Congress who want to cut back on support to Ukraine. So yesterday, when Vice President Kamala Harris was at that Munich Security Conference, she sent a message of U.S. resolve. She also said the U.S. believes Russia has committed war crimes, crimes against humanity. And tomorrow, when President Biden is in Poland, 
He is going to reaffirm U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine. He's going to say that support is unwavering, that it will last, quote, as long as it takes. And he'll also announce more weapons and money will be coming to Ukraine very soon. I want to turn to domestic stories, specifically the derailment and spill in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, In addition to being a tragedy for the people there, it's become a a political weapon. Absolutely. This is a big political headache for the Biden administration. Conservatives are saying that the toxic spill was in an area of Appalachia that voted for Trump, and that's why Biden has ignored it. Actually, it wasn't really a spill. It was a derailment and then a controlled burn to prevent an explosion. But Democrats are also criticizing the administration for being slow to respond. It took two weeks for the head of the EPA to show up in East Palestine to talk to residents there. And then you have criticism from the left Uh, that says the rail industry has been able to deregulate the safeguards for transporting hazardous materials. So the bottom line is this is a federal problem. Railways are nationally regulated. The interstate transport of hazardous materials is a federal problem. And also, it's just never a good thing when a White House that promised uh, competent governance looks less than competent. Yeah. On Friday, Florida Senator Rick Scott had an op-ed that read like he was throwing punches, but really was a capitulation because he's been going through some things because he, you know, had some ideas about Social Security and other things that even his Republicans are like turning against him on. So what, what was going on with that? That's right. Look, this is what happens when you touch the third rail of American politics, which is Social Security. Senator Scott was the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee in 2022, so he's a prominent Republican. He has a plan to sunset all federal spending every five years so Congress can decide whether or not to renew it, and of course that would include Social Security and Medicare. And he's been criticized by Joe Biden for this. Donald Trump is against this plan. Mitch McConnell has come out against this plan. And even though many Republicans, majority of Republicans in Congress for years have supported privatizing Medicare and Social Security, they understand the current political peril of that position. And now they are promising never to cut Social Security and Medicare benefits. So Senator Scott wrote an op-ed in the Washington Examiner on Friday where he said he was amending his plan to exclude Social Security and Medicare and national security and veterans benefits, which sounds just about like everything. But of course, that leaves open the big question. If Republicans are refusing to increase the debt ceiling unless spending is cut, what kind of spending do they want to cut? In the few seconds we have left, um, former President Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care. What, what do you have to say about that? Yes, Carter is 98 years old. His family said he has chosen to spend his final days at home in hospice care. Uh, we don't know exactly what health issues have prompted him to make this decision, but he has decided to suspend medical treatment. That's NPR's Mara Eliason. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been hearing it over and over again. Internal politics and logistics in Syria has made getting aid to many people suffering there after the earthquakes very difficult. To help explain why we turn to Dareen Khalifa. She's the senior Syria analyst for International Crisis Group. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aisha, for having me. So one of the the outcomes of the brutal civil war in Syria is that the majority of Syria is controlled by the government in Damascus, 
But the North, which was the place that was worst hit by these earthquakes, is actually controlled by opposition groups. So, like, how has that fact complicated the delivery of aid? You're absolutely correct, Aisha. After over a decade of war in Syria, the country is de facto divided into four areas of control. The Syrian government or the Syrian regime in Damascus basically has control over around 65% of the country, including major cities like Damascus and Aleppo. But the three other areas of control remain divided between different forces. Now, what we've seen in the aftermath of the earthquake is many countries, non-Western countries per se, have rushed to offer assistance to Damascus, unlike northern Syria, because it's an area that is de facto under the control of non-state armed groups, some of which are even listed as terrorist organizations by the U.S. and by the U.N., it makes the delivery of international assistance to these areas very difficult. It also has a chilling effect on donors who are very reluctant to be present on the ground or to send aid to these areas out of fear of the legal ramifications of these designations. So President Bashar al-Assad's government finally said last week that it would allow aid to flow from the government-held areas to the opposition-held areas. But how well has that been going? And is enough aid actually able to move to these opposition-held areas to relieve the suffering? Yeah, it hasn't been going very well. So Assad has been using aid as a war tool for so many years. The regime has really been trying to starve its opposition to death. So what they've been doing is imposing sieges on areas that they perceive as opposition strong hubs. Now, everyone rightfully so remains skeptical of the regime's intentions because this has been a very political and contentious issue. So they're thinking like, even if the regime cooperates today, they might still abuse the money coming in to basically punish these communities and to force them into surrendering to their rule. And that's why it's really, really important for the UN to continue to be able to operate out of like being hostage to Damascus and to the regime and to be able to operate independent from that. Well, tell me about the UN's relationship and role in delivering aid to Syria at this point. You know, Aisha, it's very ironic because the majority of humanitarian assistance coming into Syria is funded by Western states. Russia and Iran really don't fund any humanitarian assistance into Syria. Their support to the Syrian regime is pure military and security. They have not offered any humanitarian assistance thus far. And what's really ironic about it is that Russia uses its veto power in the Security Council every few months to really blackmail Western countries into how they're going to use their funding. And it forces them to pour a lot of money into the Syrian regime instead of giving it directly to people impacted by its own war campaign in Syria. So every six months, there is a vote in the Security Council and the Russians threaten to stop aid coming into these areas unless and until Western countries offer concessions to Moscow and offer concessions to the Syrian regime. So they're de facto taking the international community hostage on that front. And because all donors want to go through the UN and want to go through the UN Security Council, they have to play along. 
How would you describe the hold that the Assad regime has on the country at this moment? Like, is he secure in the areas that he does hold control over? Assad has control over 65% of Syria, but he doesn't have control over almost 80% of Syria's natural resources, including oil, gas, water, and wheat, which is located in northern Syria. So, and they also don't have control over the majority of the country's border. So within the areas they actually control, not only is it an area deprived of natural resources, it's also an area that is very much contested between various um, militias and various actors, including the Iranians and the Russians. So it's a very loose grip. With all of these political complications. It it is the civilians who suffer the most. Like, what do we need to know about how they have fared in the past decade? Yeah, I mean, Syria has pretty much fallen off the news. It's been over a decade of war. But the reality is you have millions of Syrians that remain displaced, living in incredibly dire circumstances even prior to this earthquake. And now with this natural disaster that happened, it pretty much hit Syrians harder than anyone else. And it is something that the international community really has a moral obligation to keep in the forefront of their efforts and try to support them, whether the displaced persons in Syria or the refugees in neighboring countries. There needs to be a concerted effort to support them and to try to get them the basic, decent life standards that they deserve. That's Dareen Khalifa. She is the Senior Syria Analyst for the International Crisis Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Aisha. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about five minutes, you'll consider New Zealand's storms and climate change. Join us at City Space this Tuesday, February 21st, for a conversation with former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter. He discusses his work to try to deepen the understanding of the public about the state of the information ecosystem and its impact on democracy. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Strong aftershocks have been shaking eastern Turkey nearly two weeks after the devastating earthquake, posing a danger to recovery crews still working in precarious rubble. More than 46,000 people are confirmed dead there and in Syria. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Turkey now to discuss how Washington can help in its recovery, one day after he confronted China's top diplomat over what the U.S. calls a Chinese spy balloon it shot down. Today, China warned Washington 
not to escalate that situation. An Iranian TV channel based in London is relocating to the U.S. because of state-backed threats from Tehran. Iran International says it has serious concerns for its workers' safety. Police in the U.K. share those concerns and say they cannot adequately protect them. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine a year ago this coming Friday. For people who have family members on different sides of the conflict, it's been a long year of disagreeing, disbelieving, and biting tongues. NPR's Wo Jingnan has more. Anya Shurakova was born in Kiev. When she was seven, she and her mom moved to the U.S. Her extended family is spread out all across Ukraine and Russia, and they all kept in touch via group chat. Really, the chat was about us sharing baby videos and, and kind of family stuff. It wasn't supposed to be like a serious thing. But things took a turn when Russia invaded Ukraine last February. My husband brought up the war kind of incidentally, and everyone kind of clammed up, and some people kind of left the chat. Conflict spilled off the chat when her mother, who grew up in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, had a huge fight over the phone with a cousin in Moscow about whether the Kharkiv Zoo had been bombed. He was like, you don't know they're getting bombed. That's crazy. <laughs> and she was like, yes, I do. I see all this video on YouTube. Anya has another cousin in Russia, Yelena, who lives in St. Petersburg. We're only using her first name for safety. Yelena says she's kept in touch with an aunt who lives in the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa a town often targeted by Russian missiles. Right now, we inhabit very different environments. First of all, we are not being bombed. We cannot understand what's happening there now. But in a way, Yelena suggests her aunt being in the middle of it all actually means she, too, cannot be objective. We cannot know how accurate our information is, nor can they know. You say they are at the scene of events, so they know everything. Well, how can they know everything? Yelena's source of information is mostly the Telegram app. The channels she follows have focused the narrative on the Donbass, a Russian-occupied region of Ukraine where armed conflict began in 2014. A key pro-Kremlin talking point is a false claim that the fight is over the persecution of Russian speakers there. In the Donbass, for example, some buildings are also being constantly hit. I'm subscribed to a channel where they post actual addresses and names of people who died. Of course, they don't talk about that on Ukrainian channels. Anya says she sees the power of these stories. Yelena, for example, was moved enough to donate children's clothing to someone who distributes it in the Donbass. This is what's pulling at the heartstrings of both of my cousins. They're saying there are these Ukrainians and Russians who speak Russian and they're being bullied, abused and threatened 
by the Ukrainian army. Anya's other cousin in Moscow has also sent her stories that push the argument that Russia attacked Ukraine in self-defense because the U.S. allegedly planned to bring Ukraine into NATO and encroach on Russia's sovereignty. Yelena offers a line you'll hear from some Russians, that the war is a political decision and perhaps those who run things know something regular people don't. I think that they should have somehow resolved things. And this was a radical decision, of course, that was made. And I don't understand if it was really necessary this way or I don't know. Russian authorities want people to think that it's impossible to know the full truth of what's going on, says Yevgeny Golovshenko. He studies Russian propaganda tactics at Copenhagen University. Nothing is true and everything is true. Just follow your gut feeling. Even as your loved ones in a war zone tell you otherwise. Research shows that it takes experiencing a war on or near the front lines to reliably dispel those cognitive biases. Most people, not that close to the fighting, says Daniel Silverman of Carnegie Mellon University. Well, you can sit down and get off a plane yourself and you'd probably feel fine in the capital city. Yelena is hundreds of miles away in St. Petersburg. And for her, the accounts from her aunt in Odessa and those from the activists in the Donbass seem equally powerful. It makes it difficult for her and Anya to talk. Both cousins say they've given up trying to persuade the other one. I want it to resolve itself because I want my family back, but I also understand, right, it's really hard to see what we see from our perspective and then have it be denied. For now, Anya's family group chat remains silent. Huo Jingnan, NPR News. New, Ze- New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins described Cyclone Gabrielle as the, quote, most significant weather event to hit New Zealand this century. Last week's storm came hard on the heels of another major storm that caused widespread flooding and landslides. And as Rebecca Rossman reports, these weather events have New Zealand thinking about ways to mitigate climate change. This is our paradise. Frank Fan thought he had found the property of his dreams when he bought this secluded ranch house just north of central Auckland eight years ago. He says it took only 30 minutes to become unlivable late last month after the city received a record-breaking 10 inches of rain in just a few hours. Just something like you putting a plug into your bucket. He faced the same nightmare all over again this week after the Auckland region was hit with another 8 inches of rain thanks to Cyclone Gabrielle. It left at least five people dead and nearly a quarter million without power. Sam Dean is with New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. We know that climate change has the greatest effect on these really short-duration convective flash flooding events. Flash flooding events that he says are only becoming a more regular and more immediate issue, especially given that many of New Zealand's cities and towns have been built around floodplains. Sea level rise is a long-term problem for climate change that has massive consequences. But flooding is a very immediate problem. Jake Parsons is with the nonprofit group Student Volunteer Army. They've gone into more than 1,300 homes, including Frank fans, over the last few weeks to help distressed families clean up the damage. There are plenty more that need our help, um, that may be waiting for insurance or waiting for other forms of help and may reach out to us later. 
Frank Fan had insurance, but insurance companies may be far more reluctant to cover homes like his built in flood-prone areas in the future, says Paul Williams. Williams is professor emeritus at the Environmental Science Department at the University of Auckland. Because they're paying the cost at the moment in repairing a lot of the damage. Another challenge is New Zealand's aging infrastructure, says Michelle McCormick. She's the policy director at Infrastructure New Zealand, an advocacy group that works with the country's public and private sector. Our infrastructure was designed for weather that we were experiencing 50, 60 years ago, not now with climate change. The government knows it has a problem. Last year, it published the country's first national adaptation plan, a long-term strategy to help adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change in the country of 5 million. One strategy, McCormick says, is a newer urban planning model called sponge cities. To soak up the rainfall that's coming down, we've got more green space, got more grass areas, not everything is cemented and concrete. It's an idea already being implemented in major cities around the world, including New York and Shanghai. Other proposals being discussed are incentivizing people to move out of at-risk areas and widening rivers to absorb more water. All of this will take time and money to implement. But Professor Paul Williams says these latest storms have been a wake-up call for the country. We do learn in the end, but you're beaten with a big stick, and the big stick in this case is severe storms. Severe storms Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said the country was simply unprepared for as he assessed the damage from Cyclone Gabrielle. We can't continue the way we have been going, he told reporters. We're going to see more of these types of weather events, so we have to be prepared. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Auckland. We all spend so much time waiting in the line at the grocery store, at the dentist's office, for the bus. But a new study in Nature shows that low-income people wait even longer on an average day for services than those who are high-income. Katie Venipal is an associate professor at The Ohio State University and one of the authors of the study. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First, tell us about the difference between like low-income people versus high-income people when it comes to wait times in general. So we know that having enough time makes for a healthier and happier life, right? We need enough time to manage our stress, play with our kids, exercise, on and on. But this idea of time inequality is kind of broad, right? It's difficult to measure. So one way of getting at an aspect of this, at least, is by examining these differences in time spent waiting for necessary goods and services. So pretty much no one likes to wait. It's unproductive, it's unpleasant. So we find that on an average day, relative to high income people, people with low income are one percentage point more likely to wait, three percentage points more likely to wait when using services, and that they spend an additional minute waiting. So this means the annual waiting time for high income people is about seven and a half hours compared to about 13.6 hours for people with low income. So the waiting time is nearly double for low-income people. And so six hours, that doesn't sound like a huge difference. Can you explain like what type of difference that makes? First, six hours, a six-hour gap is nearly a workday, right? So if you have a low income, especially if you're an hourly worker, those six hours are important to your budget. Second, about 24% of U.S. adults fall into the income bracket that we're considering low income for this study, so less than $20,000 a year. So in the aggregate, um, this gap in waiting time represents a huge national cost, so somewhere between 3.6 and $9.3 billion per year. 
So, I mean, your study says that this gap that we're seeing between the different income classes when it comes to waiting time, that it it cannot be explained by differences in family obligations or demographics or education or work time, travel time. And if that's the case, then, then what is going on? You know, our data doesn't allow us to see exactly why this is happening, so some of this is speculation, but previous research points to a number of likely reasons for time inequality generally. For example, higher income people usually have more job flexibility that might allow them to schedule appointments during off-peak hours. They also don't have to worry about taking a whole day off work or losing pay to accommodate those kinds of appointments. Um, We also know that people in more disadvantaged economic circumstances are more likely to do more waiting intensive things like um, interacting with the government more often and in more burdensome ways. We know Medicaid patients have longer doctors waiting rooms compared to privately insured patients. And then finally, and this is a big one, I think neighborhoods play a huge role here. So people living in communities with less access to reliable, high quality, efficient services like fully staffed and efficient grocery stores, for example, are likely to spend more time waiting. Now I want to talk about the racial aspect of this because I I was struck by the fact that although there are income differences, uh, this study found that even high-income Black people experience the same wait times as low-income Black people. So what is happening with that? Wealthier white people face an average wait time of 28 minutes, whereas wealthier Black people are facing an average wait time of 54 minutes. But again, previous research points to a number of likely explanations. So the first is discrimination in treatment, right? So anti-Black racism. So for example, one study found that when seeking mental health care, middle-class seekers were offered appointments more often than their working-class counterparts. But then even among middle-class patients, Black mental health care seekers were less likely than white mental health care seekers to be offered an appointment. And the second potential explanation, again, has to do with geography. So neighborhoods matter, and we have a history of redlining and systematic disinvestment from neighborhoods that are less white in this country, which means Black communities have received less financial supports and capital investments, leaving services overburdened and under-resourced. I I do want to ask, because it seems like one thing about if you have to wait longer for services, does your studies show anything about people just giving up on getting the service altogether? I could see this happening with medical services and others where you just go, I just don't have time to do that. So we don't get at this in this study, but we hope future research picks this up because we might worry that wait times alter behavior in damaging ways. Like you say, with long wait times, lower income households might put off seeking medical care until health problems become worse. People living in a neighborhood without great grocery options might choose to save time, purchase less healthy but faster food options. Long waits at polling locations mean people are less likely to vote, right? So I I think that wait times or just kind of the way people are forced to spend their time is a hidden burden of poverty, right? People know that it exists. And anecdotally, if you talk to anyone, they'll tell you that um, being low income or being poor is expensive and time consuming. That's Katie Venipal. She is an associate professor at The Ohio State University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
Los Angeles County has the nation's largest jail system. Nearly 15,000 people are incarcerated there on any given day. Many of those people don't read well, and there is no official library system in the jail. Now, a volunteer effort to create one. From Los Angeles, Emily Elena Dugdale of LAist News reports. Former jail mental health clinician Amini Sanati is digging through bags of donated books in the back of her car. Oh, look at Kite Runner. Bags and bags of books. Sheets of gray. Wow, so much good stuff. During a career that lasted over a decade, Sanati brought in thousands of books to incarcerated people who otherwise wouldn't have much to do. On the door signs, it says they can have either paper or a book, but when you don't have books to give people, it really doesn't make sense. So I would bring books. At one point, she organized rolling bookshelves that went to every floor of one of the main county jail facilities, known as Twin Towers. And every time I came back, the books were gone. But when Sanati stopped working for the jail last year, no one really stepped in to keep the books flowing. I've had people reach out to say there are no more books. We need more books. Are you still going to bring books? Sanati's former employer, the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, which oversees medical care in the jail, says it's not their job to fund or manage a library. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which runs the jail, declined to make anyone available for a recorded interview, but it did provide written answers to questions, saying the jail maintains a law library and it has a program for people to donate books. But ask someone on the inside? There's no books or anything that I've seen. That's J.C. Castro, who was just released from Twin Towers after a week in lockup. There's like usually nothing to do in there. You're usually just sitting there sleeping. Castro says he wishes there were an actual library. It would probably keep people from losing their minds so much, you know, being stuck in the cell all day. The most recent large-scale study of literacy levels amongst incarcerated people is almost 10 years old. The U.S. Department of Education found lower literacy scores than the general population. It also found those with access to libraries while incarcerated had higher rates of literacy. Other research shows access to books helps build literacy, which in turn reduces recidivism. James Nelson was incarcerated for decades and says he can vouch for the importance of reading while on the inside. It'd be folks in there that didn't even know how to read. But because of reading stuff in there, you know, guys work with each other and teach people how to read. He still remembers some of the authors he read while he was locked up. Jonetta Burris, Blood in My Eyes, George Jackson. It should be a law, you know, where people have access to read material. On this day, Amini Sanati is dropping off all the books she's been collecting for the L.A. County Jail. What's that? Sheriff's deputies help unload a few dozen bags onto rolling carts to go inside for inspection. You have more right here. Oh, my God. I got a lot. I got a, a lot. Library. Yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> a whole library. There are a few rules for book donations. Among them, no hardcovers, no violence, no porn, no romance novels for the guys. But for women, romance is allowed. Oh my God, have you read this book? Sonati no, excitedly pulls out a copy of Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Ooh, this is the end of it. That one will probably make it through inspection. For NPR News, I'm Emily Elena Dugdale in Los Angeles. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. St. Kevin's Church in Warwick, Rhode Island, is holding a mass of remembrance this morning for the victims of the station nightclub fire. Tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of the fire in West Warwick. It killed 100 people and injured 230 people. It was the fourth deadliest fire at a nightclub in U.S. history. Pyrotechnics ignited flammable acoustic foam surrounding the stage, engulfing the club in smoke and fire in minutes. This week, the Boston City Council holds an online hearing about rent control. Wednesday's session will consider a proposed home rule petition authorizing the city to implement rent stabilization and tenant eviction protection. The proposal was sponsored by Mayor Michelle Wu. Under federal law, tomorrow's holiday is called Washington's Birthday. It's also known as President's Day. The John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Dorchester is hosting a President's Day festival tomorrow. The event features reenactors who portray Presidents John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln, and First Lady Abigail Adams. It's 40 degrees in Boston with clouds around today and highs reaching the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Alzo Slade. They messed up and let me fill in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Paula Poundstone shared her favorite parts of life on the road. I always feel good when you pull into the parking lot of the hotel and they have that sign where they put the letters up themselves, and it says... phones (laughs) we'll talk to several other people who have phones including actress rosie perez on this week's wait wait don't tell me from npr tonight at six on 90.9 wbur support for npr comes from this station and from yarl and pamela moan focusing on civil liberties foster youth public radio and the arts from made in cookware made in cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Controlling the coronavirus involves some of the wealthiest and most powerful institutions in the world. And yet the COVID vaccine And yet the COVID pandemic has claimed the lives of nearly 7 million people. So what needs to change to keep it from happening again? One idea is to find a better way to keep eyes focused on the ground, a way to see infectious diseases and emerging viruses at the super local level. NPR's Ari Daniel went to a small research outpost in rural Guatemala and found a place where this idea is very much alive. He was there for our series hidden viruses, how pandemics really begin. I ask Edwin Asturias to take me to the place where it all started. So he leads me across a grassy field to a local school. We're in western Guatemala, not far from the Pacific Ocean. About a decade ago. We were standing up here overlooking the parking lot and saying this is going to be where 
you know, we're going to build a clinic. But a clinic was just the first part of his plan. Astorius is an infectious disease pediatrician at the University of Colorado. He grew up nearby, and he tells me he witnessed firsthand how poverty, malnutrition, and a lack of medical care combine to create cycles of disease. You know, those interactions affect the way that you develop you know, your brain and, you know, being successful in school or not. And to top it off, now their parents who have survived those illnesses when they were young are suffering now a huge amount of chronic illnesses. Asturias says all this keeps communities like his from thriving. So his vision swelled to not just treat illness, but to study and prevent it. He wanted a center for research. Where we can better monitor these illnesses and try to provide early interventions to sort of uh, try out new therapies or new ways to prevent some of these illnesses. The idea was pretty audacious. High-level research, that usually happens in the big cities. And besides, who would want to work here? Who'd trade in Guatemala City for mosquitoes and tropical heat? You know, we struggled with this. Dan Olson is a research director here. You know, initially we had thought about bringing in a grad student from the U.S., but then they go get their job somewhere else and they're never back again. Still, over the next few years, the health clinic was built and the laboratory, with support from the University of Colorado, Children's Hospital Colorado, and a local banana and palm oil company. So we're now walking in to the processing lab where we receive- I step into the result of all that work. It's called FUNSALU. So this this lab, the new design, happened in the last year. Olson's like a kid showing off his toys, DNA sequencers, ultra-cold freezers. This lab, he says, is on par with something you'd find in the U.S., which they need to take on one of their more ambitious goals, watching out for viruses that have pandemic potential. If anything, COVID and Zika and H1N1 have taught us, it's that you can't stick your head in the sand and and hope that the next pandemic isn't going to arrive. Sufun Salud is doing what's called active surveillance. They're running studies here to try and detect emerging diseases early. Gives you a better chance to develop interventions, whether it's diagnostic tests, whether it's vaccines. But who would run the research efforts? Olson and his team still wanted to find people nearby. Now, they did manage to hire nurses who lived locally. One of them was a young woman named Neori Rojop. So Neori, you know, we hired her right out of nursing school. She had zero clinical experience and she had zero research experience. And she was a superstar. I'm very lucky to have Funsalud down the road, near my community. Today, Rojop's 29, and she embodies the passionate drive this place has come to depend on. Local young people who notice something in their own community they want to change. Growing up, Rohop says a lot of her young relatives got really sick. When she was about 10, she remembers an urgent knock at their door one night. It was about her little cousin Carlos, or Carlitos if you're family. My aunt came to my house asking for medicine if we had because he was so sick. They grabbed whatever they had, syrups, teas, and raced out of the house. I remember the moment when I saw him. He was laying on the bed and his skin was like red because he was with this fever. His family couldn't afford a private doctor. Carlos was struggling to breathe. He, he looked kind of like sad. Rojo was afraid. 
she feared the worst. I didn't think it was fair because I didn't know how to help. Fortunately, Carlos survived, but the whole episode made a deep impression on her. I thought I need to become a nurse so I could change my community for good. Rohop's options were limited. She didn't want to leave her home or family. But then, when she was working on her nursing degree, a friend said, hey, there's this new clinic opening up just down the road. It's 8 a.m. A yellow school bus pulls up beside Fun Salud. A couple dozen people file out, including Neori Rohop. She's worked here now for almost a decade. It is uh, a relief and such a satisfaction for me to contribute something for my community. Rohov showed up thinking she was going to be a nurse, but something happened. You'd give her an idea and then she would run with it a mile. The research just clicked for Rohov, says Dan Olson. At first, they asked her to work on a study looking at using cell phones to track the spread of dengue. She thrived, so she kept getting promoted. Um, pues es... I want to keep learning to get more help for even more people. Today, Rohop's a research coordinator with two master's degrees under her belt. She starts her days with the other team leads. Then all the researchers and nurses divide up by project. One team's tracking illnesses surfacing among farm workers. Another huddles to assess their mosquito and infectious disease study. Edwin Asturias watches this hive of activity, and he smiles. We're trying to show them that you don't need to the, go to the United States to sort of do your graduate degree in epidemiology, for example. That you can do it here, practice your craft here, and do better for your own people. One by one, the research teams begin their work for the day. Neori Rojo gets behind the wheel of a tuk-tuk, and drives off to the home of one of the families involved in a research study she's in charge of. Over the years, as Astorius has watched Fun Salud fill with folks like Rohop, local, talented young people just waiting to be found, it's been a powerful lesson. A lesson that also has transformed my way of looking at global health forever, in the sense that we need to make sure that these people can take on from us when we are not here anymore truly who's going to transform the local communities and their lives is going to be themselves. And in the process, many of them undergo their own personal transformation. They become someone they never imagined, a scientist. Ari Daniel, NPR News. What happens when a golden boy, in the case of Jack Murphy, a hunky surfer, loses his way after his surfboard business fails? Well, here's how he put it. When I got back to Miami is when I met the rascals. And these were all buddies of mine, but now they were dressing pretty sharp. Now a couple of them had some nice cars, and a couple of them, they had some nice jewelry. And I said, what's going on? Well, we've changed lanes. These guys were all beach boys, guys who worked on the beach. But somewhere along the line, they became jewel thieves. And so did Jack Murphy. But this isn't some lighthearted 1960s caper. Things get dark, like murder dark. And then, kind of plain weird, Murph the Surf, Jules, Jesus, and Mayhem in the USA is the story of Jack Murphy, that surf star who turned to a life of crime from the small time to, well, 
Look, you're going to have to watch it. The documentary series is streaming on MGM+. And we're joined now by director R.J. Cutler. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, okay, so we have to know, like, what brought Jack Murphy, a.k.a. Murph the Surf, and his absolutely wild story into your life? Like, how did you <laughs> decide to tell this story? Well, I got a call from my good friends over at Imagine uh, Documentaries where uh, they had just acquired the rights to Jack's life story as a result of having read an article on the front page of the New York Times that reported that the Jewel of India, the fist-sized diamond that he had once stolen from the Museum of Natural History was going back on display at the museum. And it told the story of what I quickly realized was the very first true crime television superstar in American culture. And this was a story that was on the front pages of the newspaper every day. Everybody knew that Murph and his friends had stolen these diamonds, but the cops couldn't pin it on him. The FBI couldn't pin it on him. And he would thumb his nose. He became an outlaw celebrity. It was crazy. But the other thing was, when I read this article in the New York Times, about 20 paragraphs in, it said, oh, and by the way, Murph the Surf was also convicted of murder later on in his life. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Well, how did that journey happen? What is that story? And so uh, I decided we would make the series. And boy, the things that we discovered. Did you know the story of Murph the Surf before you got into this? Like, were you, do you remember some of these things that may have happened with the heist and all that stuff? I really don't. The jewels were stolen. The Star of India was stolen in the early months of 1964. Uh, we just, as a country, started to recover from the assassination of JFK. And I think, in large part, that's why the country was taken by this handsome young gang of thieves. There was, it was a crime we could kind of get our head around in the moment after a crime that was unfathomable. How did you get Murphy to participate? Because he participates in this. How did you get him to talk to you guys? And I mean, he says that this documentary isn't a crime story, but it, it seems like it's, this is a lot of crime. Oh, there's a lot of crime, and he doesn't want it to be a crime story. He wants it to be a story about a jewel heist and a handsome young guy who found salvation through the Lord. He likes to tell the story in a way that he liked during his lifetime, and he hoped that we would tell the story in a way that skipped the murders in the middle of it. He would say things like, sure, I went bad for a couple of years, but look at my whole life. And it's an interesting uh, spin on events. By the time I met Murph, which was in the final weeks of his life, he was fully on board. But man, he was intent on putting his full spin on the narrative. The results of the series, I think, are something different. One of the fascinating things about this story is, is like nowadays when people think of a big heist, they think about like hackers and laptops and crack the safe and do other stuff. Um, but this one with Murph to Surf, it really called on the thieves to be athletic and not necessarily like breaking through technology. It's a little bit like uh, 
Mission Impossible and Tom Cruise coming down from the ceiling. That's what these guys were doing. And Murph was a world-class athlete. He was a champion surfer. He was the first person to ever receive an athletic scholarship in tennis to the University of Pittsburgh. He was also going up against the opposite of world-class security. Yes. I mean, it's, it's 1964, and nobody really expected that a bunch of guys would try to climb in through a fifth-story window and rappel down. So security was lax. There wasn't even an inventory at the museum. So for weeks, they didn't really know what had been stolen. What did you learn about Jack Murphy? A lot of people who end up doing these sorts of things, they usually have troubled childhoods, and generally, like, you can almost bet that the father's probably not a very good guy. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's part of Jack Murphy's story, right? It sure is. You know, we we say it's all about daddy. It seems to be the case in, in all the stories we tell, and not just in stories about people who have committed gruesome crimes or people who are larger than life. It often or always goes back to the relationship with the father. And for Jack, there was a deep hole in his heart and he couldn't get enough, but he also couldn't stay on the right side of the law. But he was charismatic to the point where he could compel followers who, as I say, maybe didn't even think that what he was telling them was the truth. You know, later in his life, he became a man of God. That's how he got out of prison. And he was going to be there longer than you could imagine. The judge wanted them to throw away the key, but he found the Lord and he started a ministry and he was released from prison on parole and was a free man. Uh, uh, this is such a, a perfect story for our times. It raises questions about the very nature of truth itself. You know, it, it, on one hand, we're asked, who are we to doubt this man of faith who has devoted his life to helping so many others? But on the other, it, it can't help but ask us why we so desperately need to believe in people like Murph, even when we know that they've been looking us in the eye and lying to us. Ultimately, what you're describing is, once again, it's this kind of classic American outlaw story because there's this mystique, but then there's this idea of redemption. And I guess I, I do want to ask you, what did you personally make of Murphy's uh, professed spiritual awakening? What do you think of that? I can't sit in judgment of another man and his faith. It's a deeply personal thing. And Murph uh, helped many, many people through his ministry. And that's part of what makes this so complicated. When you have that power, what do you do with that power? At the same time, he never admitted that he had committed these gruesome, gruesome murders. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated question. And we aim to kind of look at all the complexities in this series and also we aim to look at who it is that receives redemption in our culture and society and how that happens. That's R.J. Cutler, director of Murph to Surf, Jewels, Jesus, and Mayhem in the USA, streaming on MGM+. Thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Thank you, guys. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility 
for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. At 1 this afternoon, you'll have a new chance to connect with Tiziana Deering and Radio Boston. Then keep listening at 2 o'clock for It's Been a Minute at its new time here on WBUR. Join WBUR con salsa host Jose Masso Friday, March 10th at City Space for an evening of salsa music along with dancing and conversation. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, hosting a conversation with author and social commentator Fran Lebowitz on Thursday, March 9th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. Congress has approved over $100 billion in aid for Ukraine. That includes tens of billions for military hardware. But how do we know it's going where it's intended? We should all be concerned about the possibility of a weapon ending up with the wrong hands outside of Ukraine. Concerns about Ukraine spending tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmina Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The U.S. says Russia has committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Find out how Russia is responding. And this week marks a year since Russia's invasion. We take a look at what people thought was going to happen. And I think first five days, we will die all in this, in this building, we will die. Plus, former Southern Baptist powerhouse Beth Moore talks about her new memoir and leaving her denomination behind. And finding love in the puzzle. It's Sunday, February 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. China has issued a warning to Washington today not to escalate the situation. After the first high-level meeting between the two countries since the U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon two weeks ago, Esme Nicholson reports from Berlin, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, in Germany last night. After much speculation about will they, won't they, Blinken and Wang sat down together on the last night of the Munich Security Conference. Addressing tensions over alleged Chinese surveillance balloons, Blinken stressed that such incursions into U.S. airspace must never happen again. The State Department says that Blinken told Wang that the U.S. is not seeking conflict with China, but warned him against Beijing providing any material support to Russia or helping Moscow evade Western sanctions. Speaking earlier at the conference, Wang accused the U.S. of deliberately impeding China's economic development, but added he is hopeful Washington will adopt a more pragmatic approach to Beijing. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. 
Blinken is in Turkey now to tour the earthquake disaster zone as the focus shifts from rescue to recovery. Strong aftershocks are still shaking eastern Turkey. NPR's Jason Bobian has more from Gaziantep. The aftershocks are an ongoing danger to rescue workers who continue to try to extract bodies from the precarious piles of wreckage. They are also rattling the nerves among the hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced from their homes and are now living in tents or other makeshift shelters. A 5.2 quake jolted residents awake late Saturday night. It was followed by a series of aftershocks registering between 4.1 and 4.8 in magnitude. Across the vast quake zone, rare and some say miraculous rescue rescues continue. In the city of Antakya, workers pulled a couple and their child from the debris alive 12 days after the initial quake. The child, however, died soon after. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. New Zealand is dealing with its own natural disaster. At least 11 people are dead after last week's major storm that also damaged roads, infrastructure and supply chains. Here's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. There is no doubt that as a country we have a steep mountain ahead of us. And we will climb that together. Hipkins says Cyclone Gabrielle was the worst natural disaster to hit this century. After committing himself to a life of public service at home and overseas, Jimmy Carter, the 39th president, has opted to spend his final days at home in Plains, Georgia, where the 98-year-old is receiving hospice care. A chemical odor remains in East Palestine, Ohio, more than two weeks after a train carrying hazardous materials derailed and burned for days. Residents are worried about their health. The EPA says air and water testing results have been fine, but pooling liquids remain in areas and excavation of contaminated soil goes on. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Mourners gathered at St. John's Prep in Danvers yesterday for the funeral of 12-year-old sixth-grader Sebastian Robinson and his mother, Linda Robinson. Police say earlier this month the two were killed at home in Andover by Linda's husband and Sebastian's father, Andrew Robinson, who then killed himself. The Boston Globe says St. John's Prep head of school at Hardeman called Sebastian a gentle soul who loved his school. Linda Robinson had been a professional model before working as a finance director for a North Andover company. On Boston Common, the Frog Pond's annual Skating with Friends event has been canceled today because of the unseasonably warm weather. The event usually features free ice skating and hot chocolate. After a break during the pandemic last year, 1,100 people showed up for the return of the event. But Liz Visa, the president of Friends of the Public Garden, says this year the group could not guarantee that the required two and a half inches of ice on the rink would stick around all day. You know, it's really sad. This is um, school vacation week. We had a wonderful uh, group of people last year that flocked to the to the uh, frog pond to be able to enjoy free skating. We were very much looking forward to welcoming people again. So we are very disappointed that we cannot provide it this year. She says the Friends of the Public Garden is figuring out the best time of year to hold the event in the future, given the unpredictable temperatures. The Celtics' Jalen Brown might play in tonight's NBA All-Star game after a facial fracture this month kept him off the court for four games. Yesterday, Brown practiced in Salt Lake City with the East All-Stars and said at some point today he'd make a game-time decision about playing. He was injured February 8th when his teammate Jason Tatum accidentally elbowed him in the face. The All-Star game starts at 8.30 tonight. 
It is 40 degrees in Boston with clouds around today and highs in the mid-40s. Clouds tonight, lows in the low 40s. Then tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Monday, a slight chance of some showers and highs reaching the mid-50s. On Tuesday, there's a slight chance of some snow in the morning. After that, rain likely and Tuesday's temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thanks for being with us. At a major annual defense conference in Germany, Vice President Kamala Harris took U.S. criticism of Russia over its war in Ukraine to a new level. She accused Russia of committing crimes against humanity. And I say to all those who have perpetrated these crimes and to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. NPR's Charles Maines joins us now from Moscow. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you. You know, crimes against humanity, like that is that is not a light charge coming from the vice president of the United States, to say the least. Have we heard anything from Moscow about what was said? Yeah, nothing from the Kremlin, but we did hear from Anatoly Antonov, uh, Russia's ambassador to the U.S. Uh, in a statement released on social media, Antonov called the vice president's claims a cynical attempt to demonize Russia and uh, a way to justify the U.S. giving more arms to Kiev. Now, Moscow has repeatedly denied targeting civilians. Uh, it argues atrocities, including several of which Harris noted in her speech, were either staged or committed by Ukrainian forces against their own population to blacken Russia's name. Uh, in fact, Antonov argued that it was the U.S. turning a blind eye to human rights abuses by Ukraine. Now, to be fair, a, a United Nations investigation did indeed find evidence of some violations by Ukrainian forces, but the U.N. report found Russia's armed forces responsible for, quote, the vast majority. Uh, Moscow doesn't like to mention that. So Harris says that uh, Russia will be held to account. Do we know what that means? And can the U.S. actually do that? It's a good question. You know, the International Criminal Court would, in theory, handle a trial dealing with crimes against humanity, uh, including against senior government figures. Uh, but neither Russia nor Ukraine nor, for that matter, the U.S. is a signatory to the statute that created the court. So the ICC uh, would seem to have no jurisdiction here. This year's Munich conference was the first time since the 90s that Russian officials weren't invited. You know, of course, the reason for that is because of the war in Ukraine. You know, how how is that kind of snub gone over in Moscow? You know, officially, there's a, there's kind of a shrug. You know, the Kremlin argues the conference has become an event under the thumb of the U.S. and lost its inclusiveness and objectivity. But let's face it, you know, this is yet another form to which Russia is no longer welcome or uh, to which Russia has cut ties, depending on how you look at it. Russia declined to send a delegation last year. Pointedly, the organizers have offered seats to prominent Kremlin critics, including former oil tycoon Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, chess champion Gary Kasparov, also Yulia Navalnaya. This is the wife of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. So it's not as though there aren't any Russians there. 
As we approach uh, a year since the start of the war, President Biden heads to Poland, where he'll give a major speech on Tuesday. How is the event being marked in Moscow? Well, it turns out there will be dueling speeches. Uh, Putin will also give an address, his State of the Nation address, to Parliament on Tuesday. That'll be focused on Ukraine. Uh, as to what to expect, you know, it's really anyone's guess, but Russians seem to be divided into two general camps. Uh, one argues we'll see Putin do more of the same, uh, repeating past claims that this is a necessary war in Ukraine to defend against Western aggression uh, and really preparing Russians for a long war and, and tough road ahead. Uh, the other camp argues Putin wouldn't engage in this kind of a public exercise unless he had a big surprise uh, in whatever form that might take. Uh, and there's a massive rally planned in Moscow's largest stadium on Wednesday where Putin will join. And that suggests he has something he may want to frame as a celebration. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The predictions when Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago were grim. Kyiv would fall in days. European support for Ukraine could splinter. And later, when Russia slashed gas supplies to Europe, many feared public support for Ukraine would fall. None of those things happened. NPR's Frank Langfitt looks at why. As tanks rolled towards Kyiv on February 24th, Many thought Russia was headed for a swift victory. So the Russian military is really an overmatch for the Ukrainians. Ukraine's military is badly outgunned. It's likely that the Russians will take control of Kiev, though not without a fight. The Ukrainian leadership was also deeply worried. Back then, Alexei Arstovich was an advisor to the office of the Ukrainian president. He was holed up in Kiev with Volodymyr Zelensky. It was a huge number of Russian forces. It's about maybe 20 or 25 times more Russians than our defenders. We completely understand it's impossible to defend Kyiv. After Zelensky refused to evacuate, Arostovich says they handed out machine guns. And I think first five days, we will die. All in this, in this building, we will die. The Russians never made it past the suburbs. The weaknesses of the Russian military are now well documented. Endemic corruption, terrible logistics, rigid command and control. But Jack Watling of the Royal United Services Institute, a London think tank, says the Russians could have succeeded. I think their plan was viable, as in it could have worked for them to isolate Kiev. Watling says Russia made at least one fatal mistake. It only told its units north of Kiev they were invading Ukraine at the last moment. They thought they were on training exercises in Belarus. Russia wanted to maintain the element of surprise. It worked. But it also left officers and soldiers unprepared, psychologically and otherwise. Commanders scrambled to study old maps they'd brought, including those which dated to the mid-1980s. Platoon commanders were basically told, drive down that road until you get to X. Well, they didn't know where X was, especially since the Ukrainians are pulling down the street signs. And so we saw instances of Russian troops getting into the center of a town, not knowing where they were, getting out, trying to chat with the locals to work that out, not having their weapons loaded, and then being hit with artillery. Watling says the military's lack of faith in its own troops proved decisive. When you don't trust your people, then friction essentially becomes the enemy. The ability of your own system to coordinate itself becomes catastrophically fouled up. And that's fundamentally what led the Russians to fail. If the Russians lacked faith in their own forces, they were banking the Europeans and the Americans would fragment or fold. After all, in 2014, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea, a strategic peninsula nearly the size of Massachusetts, the U.S. and the EU responded with sanctions. And in 2021, 
American troops pulled out of Afghanistan amid harrowing scenes, which revealed deep divisions between the U.S. and its NATO allies. It was very chaotic at the airport. You know, there were these videos circulating on social media that showed Afghans running alongside a C-17, clinging to it. An image that Russian President Vladimir Putin could only have found encouraging. The European Union has 27 members with often different agendas. Reaching consensus can be notoriously difficult. But Putin's long buildup of troops on Ukraine's border gave the U.S. time to call him out and rally support. When it came, the audacity and the brutality of the Russian invasion horrified people across Europe and united their leaders. NATO allies poured weapons into Ukraine at a staggering rate. Bruno Latte is a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Brussels. I think for Europe it meant the end of an era of complacency. The end of economic complacency, military complacency. And it came very sudden, like a slap in the face. Christy Rake is deputy director of the International Center for Defense and Security, a leading think tank in Estonia. She says the invasion also exposed a certain naivete. It has forced Europeans to recognize that having too much of idealism and pacifism can actually be dangerous if it leads to closing one's eyes to the threat of war. After setbacks on the battlefield, Vladimir Putin tried to divide NATO allies by weaponizing energy. European nations relied on Russia for about 40 percent of their natural gas. Putin cut the vast majority of that flow. European nations responded by cutting energy consumption by 15 percent and found new energy sources. Liana Fix is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. Many doomsayers were afraid that the European Union will not be able to get off Russian gas as quickly. And it was also something that Russia did not expect. So Russia's energy weapon has really lost its edge. Fix also says the scale of the invasion, the biggest since World War II, focused minds. If there's been existential crisis to the European Union and to European countries, those are the moments when Europeans stick together and finally are able to agree on solutions. The war and Russia's policies have taken an economic toll. In December, inflation, largely driven by high energy prices, was still over 10% in the United Kingdom. But Isabel Hoffman, founder of EU Opinions at Germany's Bertelsmann Siftung Foundation, says a strong majority of Europeans still support arming Ukraine. A mild winter helped. The energy crisis is not as bad as people might have imagined it to be. You know, nobody is freezing in their homes. David Quarry, Britain's ambassador to NATO, says Ukraine's gains on the ground and Russia's continued attacks on civilians and energy infrastructure have also shored up public support. First of all, people have seen the Ukrainians succeeding and paying an enormous price to defend their country, to defend their freedoms. And secondly, people see the absolutely horrific cost that Russia is imposing on Ukraine at the moment. Considering all the concerns at the beginning of the war, Isabel Hoffman says Europe has acquitted itself pretty well. There is a lot of talk around how democracies are weak, liberal societies are weak and easily to manipulate, etc., etc. But I think there is equally evidence there to show that they're quite resilient. Over the past year, that may have been one of President Putin's biggest miscalculations. Frank Langford, NPR News, Brussels.
You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. You can join NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro at City Space Sunday, March 26th for a conversation about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 41 degrees in Boston at 1018, mostly cloudy today and highs reaching the mid 40s. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Xfinity Internet announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. U.S. and South Korea's militaries today held a combined drill over part of South Korea and off its coast one day after North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time in months. Former President Jimmy Carter, who spent decades advocating for democracy, health and human rights around the world, has opted to spend his final days at home with family in Plains, Georgia. The Carter Center says the 98-year-old is receiving hospice care there. Amazon says starting in May, its corporate workers must get back to the office for at least three days a week. After years of remote pandemic work, the CEO says the move is good for the workplace and the economies of the cities where Amazon has its offices. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Nikki Haley's tiny hometown, Bamberg, South Carolina, played a starring role in the video she made announcing her run for the Republican presidential nomination. The railroad tracks divided the town by race. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants, not black, not white. I was different. The former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador under President Trump said her parents taught her to be grateful to live in America. NPR Sarah McCammon spent a day in Haley's hometown and brings us this report. Nikki Haley paints a picture of Bamberg, South Carolina, as a place where race was a reality, but not a limitation. Our little town came to love us, but it wasn't always easy. Haley was born in 1972, just a few years after her parents moved to Bamberg. Her father took a position as a biology professor at a local college, and her mother taught school before opening a successful clothing business. At the time, she says they were the only Indian family in town. Nobody knew who we were, what we were, or why we were there. Nobody knew who they were. 
Harriet Coker is a retired teacher from Bamberg and has known the family, the Rendawas, since before Nikki was born. She had Nikki in her seventh grade social studies class. There were challenges. A spokeswoman for Haley's campaign says when they first moved to the area, her parents struggled to find anyone willing to rent to them. Her modest childhood home was featured prominently in Haley's campaign video. But soon, Coker says they were just part of the community. You know, it didn't take long for people to really get to know them and to realize what wonderful people they are. As a candidate for president, Haley is holding up her political resume as a living example of the idea that America is, at its core, a land of opportunity. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. In her political career, Haley has herself been targeted for her race. In 2010, a Republican state senator who was an ally of one of her gubernatorial primary opponents used a racist slur to refer to Haley, alluding to her parents' Sikh faith. Uh, she comes from good people, and she's good people. Tony Duncan, a local black business owner, is a few years older than Haley and remembers being in school with her older siblings. But growing up in South Carolina in the 60s and 70s, Duncan says race was always there. I think all of us knew what this country was built on. Um, and it still exists. And, you know, as people here in America, we have to deal with these things. Lisa B. Stokes grew up in Bamberg and spent her career as a teacher. She started elementary school right around the time local schools were integrating and spent her first year of grade school in an all-black class. Stokes has mixed feelings about Haley's comments. Yes, there are so many opportunities, and, and we can all make it. It's a lot easier for some than, than others. As Haley's star has risen, her hometown, like many other rural small towns, has declined, losing jobs and many of its young people. And it's still somewhat divided along racial lines. Stokes lives a few blocks from the much larger home that Haley's parents eventually moved into. She says when she moved into the overwhelmingly white neighborhood in 1990, many of the neighbors actively avoided her. It was obvious some were not very pleased, you know, that we had moved here. And, and even to this day, you know, we're, we're the only African-American couple on, on this street. Stokes says she appreciated Haley's work to remove the Confederate battle flag from the state capitol, but she was disappointed to see Haley, after criticizing Trump, align herself with him just a few years later. So it's like, come on, who are you, Nikki Haley? You know, really and truly, who are you? Stokes says she's proud of the recognition Haley has brought their hometown. She just hopes that Haley will remember the people back home on both sides of town. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Bamberg, South Carolina. The new mRNA COVID shots developed during the pandemic were a major leap forward for vaccine invention. Compared to traditional vaccines, they can be modified and manufactured more quickly. But mRNA vaccines also have a downside. They have to be stored in extremely cold freezers that many low-income countries don't have access to. NPR's Narit Eisenman reports on an effort to fix that. Melanie Saville heads up research and development for an alliance of governments, foundations, and international groups trying to spur vaccine invention. It's called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, or CEPI. Saville says the challenge with mRNA vaccines is that their key ingredient, the genetic material known as mRNA, is not very stable. It will be degraded quite quickly unless it's protected. 
Right now, that's done by coating the mRNA in tiny fat molecules. But even those fat particles only really work when kept at really low temperatures. We're talking about minus 60, minus 70 degrees. Celsius. That's more than three times as cold as the freezer in your kitchen. So really special, high-grade, and really quite expensive freezers. Which means a lot of lower-income countries can't take full advantage of mRNA vaccines. Low- and middle-income countries just don't have the infrastructure to do that. This actually highlights one of the areas of inequity in terms of vaccine delivery. And that's not just an issue now. It could hamper response in a future pandemic, for which mRNA vaccines are likely to be the fastest option. mRNA vaccines, you know, for speed of development are really unprecedented. They are one of the first candidates to look at for any new emerging infectious disease. So CEPI has launched a $17.5 million seed fund to help any developers who think they might have a better way of coding mRNA, the kind of ideas that are often too high in the sky for for-profit companies to take a risk on. This is always quite a challenge with early innovation. And, you know, one of the things that CEPI can do is get to proof of concept. Subsequent to that, then, it's much easier to get funding so far, they've picked two contenders. One is a Dutch company that will test a type of polymer. That's a chemical formulation. Another is an Australian company proposing to effectively freeze-dry the mRNA onto a patch that's then placed on a person's skin. Saville says CEPI will probably announce at least three more projects in the coming weeks. And she says it might take only a year or two to see which ones have legs. Many of these things may not work, but you have to invest in these innovations to really get breakthrough. And she says that's what makes it exciting. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. After taking down that balloon, lawmakers and officials are increasingly setting their sights on another Chinese product, TikTok. The app has already been banned on federal government devices and Wi-Fi networks over concerns that the China-based social media company could share or be forced to share data from its one billion users with the Chinese government. I don't use TikTok and I would not advise uh, anybody to do so uh, because of these concerns. That's Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco speaking last week at an event called Disruptive Technologies by Nation States and Malign Cyber Actors. The company that owns TikTok, ByteDance, says it doesn't share user data, but that possibility is causing more and more state governments and college campuses to enact bans of their own. All this uproar over TikTok made us wonder, what does all this talk about bans mean for content creators who rely on the site for community, for creativity, or even for money? So we've invited two TikTokers we know to talk about all of this, Rosie Grant and Oliver James. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, I mean, you've both been on NPR before, but let's really quickly remind people of what kind of content you create. Oliver, let's start with you. You're a book talk influencer, right? Yes. So what does that mean? <laughs> um, you know what, tell you the truth, I'm still trying to figure out what it means. It's a, <laughs> a, a community of people who support people with uh, reading struggles or to just help people connect with people who like to read. So it's kind of like a reading platform. 
So it's 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 the part of TikTok that talks about books. Yep. And Rosie, um, I would say that you fall into the cooking category, but it's it's a bit more involved than just cooking. Like, tell us what you do on TikTok. I um, cook recipes that I find on gravestones. So it's like a mix of grave talk and like cooking TikTok. Okay. <laughs> I can see why we've had both of you on before, but but that's not the focus for today. Um, you both live in California where there has been uh, a, a lot of talk about a TikTok ban. Rosie, I want to ask you because you work at a state university um, in the state of Georgia. Um, when their ban was passed, it also effectively banned TikTok at state schools because they have state Wi-Fi networks. Um, is this something you've been thinking about that you could just wake up one morning and find that there's a ban? Yeah, it's unfortunately very present that it could just disappear um, for that reason, I've started backing up my TikToks just in case to prepare for the worst. I hope that won't happen, but uh, yeah, you never know. And Oliver, how about you? Are you taking any precautions like in the event that the app is somehow banned nationally? Um, Not completely. I kind of just was told about this, but I've heard people kind of mentioning it, but I, I don't really think about it at all. So... I'll just do the regular, maybe back up a video or uh, tell my followers, go follow me somewhere else if they can. Um, that's probably it. I, I mean, so Rosie, I, I know you've been talking to some other content creators about this. Like, it, are people feeling nervous? Like, I mean, I would think, you know, if you're making money off of TikTok and it's a part of your um, income, that it might be a little bit concerning to hear talk about banning it. Yeah, I mean, it is something that I truly hope doesn't happen. Like, I mean, as far as if you take a step back and you look at like the privacy concerns, I think the privacy concerns are very real. Like, you know, data is collected on TikTok. That being said, data is also collected on Facebook and Instagram and your smartphone. And, you know, for me, I, I don't know if necessarily I'm more worried about one platform over another. Like, I've allowed my data to be shared as I'm on it. Um, and yeah, so I think for myself, like a community would be lost um, that I've really gotten a lot from and, you know, still would like to connect with. So that's a bit scary. I have friends in LA who this is like a big source of income. Um, so for them, if that just disappeared overnight, it, it is a little bit scary to think about. I mean, Oliver, and I guess for both of you, like if there was some type of restrictions put in place, would you would you try to like do a workaround? Um, I wouldn't tell you straight up. I don't care what they do with it. If they ban it, it is what it is. Like I don't base my life and my happiness or anything that I got going on in my life off of TikTok. I enjoy it, but mm. I know it can be taken from me. So whatever, you take it, I'll be somewhere else. Come follow me there. I mean... There's something about having just alternative forms of social media. Like I was thankful when TikTok came out because like when there's too few choices, I feel like the platforms really suffer. And then when TikTok came out, it made everything else get better. Even if I wasn't creating on TikTok, I think I still enjoy the algorithm more. I enjoy the content more. I feel better being on the app. So yeah, I guess we would wait and see, but I would definitely miss just like the content on it really as a consumer. It's just so good. I kind of look at it like, you know, TikTok has really been, I guess you can say, like a second family to people who who lost a lot or are going through a lot or just looking to find a lot. And 
what I think we're all trying to figure out is, is this like a platform for social media or is this like a new world for connecting to people? And I think that's where we were kind of like wondering for me, like, I'm like, man, I connected with a lot of people, kind of like a lot of friends. And I'm like, I don't remember the last time I've done that in my adulthood. So to me, I'm looking at him like no other platform I have connects me with people like friends. And I'm like, that would suck to lose that. But that just goes to show like, you know, we need to focus on the people. That's Rosie Grant and Oliver James, known as at Ghostly Archive and at Oliver Speaks One on TikTok. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In Turkey, volunteers are working to get hot food to hundreds of thousands of people who were forced from their homes by earthquakes earlier this month. Even for people who didn't lose their homes, the quakes destroyed gas and electric lines, making it impossible to cook. And as NPR's Jason Bobian reports, lentil soup has emerged as a workhorse in food relief efforts. One major problem in the days after this disaster has been the cold. In some parts of the quake zone, there's snow on the ground. In others, the temperature fluctuates on either side of freezing. People who've lost their homes and aid workers often huddle around open fires to try to warm up. Many people fled their apartments with only the clothes they were sleeping in. Eileen Klinchla was one of them. She's now living with her parents and her sister in a tent in a park in the hard-hit city of Nurda. It was very cold in the beginning. Uh, we didn't have anything to keep ourselves warm. No covers or traditional wool blankets. But eventually, we were given some bedding, and now we've gotten used to the cold. Their tent is right next to a playground where kids are chasing a soccer ball. Around the corner, volunteers cook three meals a day. The 28-year-old Klinchna jokes that there's almost too much food here at the encampment. There's a food truck offering doner kebabs. Volunteers have set up a mobile bakery to make fresh pita bread. And from another van, a young chef ladles out steaming hot lentil soup. It's still cold here, but when we eat the soup, it warms us. At a municipal soup kitchen south of the city of Gaziantep, lentil soup was the first thing they made to distribute to people affected by the earthquake. Ulay Pozkurt is the food engineer at the kitchen. There was no natural gas here after the earthquake. So for us, the lentil soup was the fastest soup to make. Also, it is easy to serve, it is practical, and it is possible to eat while you are standing. She says lentil soup has many benefits. It's easy to prepare. You can eat it without utensils, straight from a bowl. It has onion and garlic, so it has some kind of antibiotic effects. It warms you. At the same time, it is nutritious. And the lentils have a high level of protein. It is one of the traditional soups of Gaziantep. 
Therefore, it is a preferred soup at times like this. And there are 10 of these massive pots on this side of the room, and then it looks like there's another 10 over on that side as well. Even before the earthquake, this municipal kitchen was used to prepare free hot meals that they distributed to 21 different locations across the city. The director of the center says that in the first days after the earthquake, they went from producing 13,000 meals a day to more than 200,000. He says the most important disaster relief supply is bottled water, and the second most important is soup, lentil soup. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. Tomorrow, a morning edition, a visit to families and medical providers in Florida, one of the latest states to ban gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors. Listen live tomorrow morning on this station's website or at NPR.org. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston police are urging anyone with information about two shooting deaths last night to get in touch with homicide detectives as the investigations continue. Police say a woman was shot and killed in Dorchester, and in Roxbury, two men were shot, one fatally. State highway officials say they want to install additional wrong-way driver detection systems around Massachusetts even before the pilot program is fully up and running. The pilot started last fall and was supposed to last a couple of years, but State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the system already has detected 22 wrong-way drivers since November, and he says that level of success suggests this is the correct approach. When the system is in place, if vehicles enter highway ramps in the wrong direction, they trigger bright lights and signs warning the drivers of their mistakes. On the MBTA today, Orange Line service is suspended between North Station and Ruggles. That's to accommodate track work and demolition work on the Government Center garage. For alternate service, you can use the Green Line between Government Center and Copley and shuttle buses for service between Copley and Ruggles. Meanwhile, today on the Green Line, shuttle buses replace trains between North Station and Government Center. It is 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Growing up in Silicon Valley, Malcolm Harris says the weather was nice, the schools were good, people had money, but something felt off. On the one hand, this is the center of the greatest wealth explosion in the history of man. And at the same time, we saw a youth suicide rate that was way higher than the state average. In his sprawling new history of Silicon Valley, he gives his take on why. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. 
Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. And he also happens to be the subject of a really, really delightful interview by The New Yorker. And so I'm going to just take a moment here at the top to deal with some highlights from that, if that's okay with you, Will. Yeah, do it. Okay, so, I mean, I found out a whole lot reading this story. The only issue I do have with the story is they did not mention NPR until about three-quarters of the way down, and I do, you are the puzzle master of Weekend Edition, so I feel like they should have put that at the top, but that's not on you. <laughs> uh, so, but then you started, you actually started making puzzles at eight years old, and you made puzzle making your own major in college like, you made it up yourself. I didn't even know you could do that. Wow. Well, I've been uh, crazy about puzzles since I was a kid. When I was a kid, I joked about majoring in puzzles at college, never imagining that you could do it. But Indiana University has this program where you can literally make up your major in anything if you're accepted into the program. And I convinced them that puzzle making or puzzles in general, uh, enigmatology, as I called it, was a subject of a serious subject of academic inquiry. You also mentioned that you found love at 70 and um, for the first time, a serious relationship. That's really exciting. Uh, wow. What am I going to say here? <laughs> now, now you're puzzled. See, now you're puzzled. <sighs> yeah, you never know what life is going to throw at you, you know, and uh, this just dropped in my lap and uh, life has been real nice for me and it's even better now. I think that is just lovely. So, Will, I'll, I'll take you off the, the hot spot. We'll put somebody else in the hot spot. Yeah, we'll, we'll put somebody else in the hot seat. So first, start off by reminding us of last week's challenge. Yes, it came from listener Steve Baggish of Arlington, Massachusetts. I said, name a popular rock band, one that everyone knows, add a B sound at the end, and phonetically, you'll name a place where you might hear this band play. What band is it? Well, the band is U2. Add a B sound and you get YouTube. Oh, okay. That's good. Now, out of over 2,000 correct submissions, Gene Herman of Huntington Beach, California, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. So how long have you been playing the puzzle, Gene? I, I'd say probably about 30 years or so from way back in the postcard days. Well, that is awesome. So then I know that you're ready to play this puzzle, right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, take it away, Will. All right, Gene and Aisha. There's a syndicated newspaper puzzle called Wordy Gertie. I don't know if you know it. It's been around for almost 50 years. It involves rhyming phrases like history, mystery, and charity rarity. And it's made now by Mark Dana, who celebrated his 30th anniversary with the puzzle last week. So, today I thought I'd do some wordy gerties. Every answer is a rhyming two-word phrase, like history mystery, in which each word has three syllables. Here's number one, a how-to guide that comes out once a year. Annual manual. You got it. Number two, one who totes around an object that blocks passage. Three syllables, and if you tote something, what do you do to it? Carrier barrier. You got it. A barrier carrier, is it? An eyeglass that's shaped like a dunce cap. Huh. Conical monocle. Oh, you got it. A better looking guy who pays a kidnapper. <laughs> 
Anthemer Ransomer. Oh, you're in a roll. Sweepstakes for some earthenware. Crockery lottery. Uh, well, lottery is right. Pottery, pottery lottery. Pottery lottery is it. And here's your last one. Some garden flowers from the capital of Austria. Uh, Vienna. Vienna. Vienna in the adjectival form. Viennese. Uh-huh. Uh, peonies. Viennese peonies. You got it. Oh, my goodness. Gene, I am so glad you got that because I could not help you with anything. How do you feel, Gene? Oh, I feel relieved. You know, I, I never know what type of puzzle you're going to have, but uh, this one wasn't bad once we got started. You did great today. Oh, yeah. No, you did awesome. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Gene, what member station do you listen to? LAist. That's Gene Herman of Huntington Beach, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Well, thank you for having us. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Elaine Ellenson of San Francisco. Name a tree. In the very middle of the word, insert a homophone of another tree. And the result will be a new word describing what everyone wants to be. What is it? So again, name a tree. In the very middle of the word, insert a homophone of another tree. And the result will be a new word describing what everyone wants to be. What is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this upcoming holiday week is Thursday, February 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. I have to say, I read uh, Portraits of Devotion. See, I didn't, I didn't know if you'd have any familiarity, oh, yes. really. Yes, I found it in Walmart. Started reading <laughs> it. I was like, now who wrote this? Oh, you know, I knew we would connect as women, but I didn't know if we would have uh, faith in common. So yes, <laughs> I'm so glad to have you here. Beth Moore was the epitome of a modern Southern Baptist and a motto for Southern Baptist women. And not just Southern Baptist women, evangelical women. I'm talking about selling out arenas all over the country with her women-focused Bible study events. Then came Donald Trump and the infamous Access Hollywood tape. Moore spoke out against him and didn't back down. A firestorm ensued that would end with her leaving the Southern Baptist denomination in 2021. Now in her new memoir, All My Knotted Up Life, she tells the story of splitting with the church that raised her and about surviving abuse as a child. Beth Moore joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. In the book, you talk about growing up as a Baptist in Arkansas. Yes. I have to say that reading this, I grew up Pentecostal. I'm still in a Pentecostal church. Yes, I yes. always found it amusing because you were kind of having these experiences that are a little more mystical. They were seeming a little more Pentecostal, but you you a Baptist. I, I got to tell you, Aisha, because you are on to something. You're on to the reason why 
I didn't just become controversial a couple of years ago. Now, <laughs> it, it was, I really have had trouble fitting because mm. I did, I have a very Pentecostal personality <laughs> and I was more demonstrative and, and more enthusiastic than my world was accustomed to. I will tell you that. You know, and, and, and I mean, there was a funny thing where you said um, in one of your conferences that one of the women, you laid hands on her and she fell out and you kind of whis- whispered to her, please get up. Cause oh, they, they go- <laughs> you're going to get me fired. You're going to get me fired. I literally, she dropped in my arms. Now, I've never had this happen in my life. Dropped in my arms. I had her around the waist and I literally slung her back up and it was like, I'm really going to need you to wake up. Really going to. <laughs> So these things are delightful Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. I got to serve in all the way from the Frozen Chosen. I have been with what I would have considered back in the day, the Fruit Loops. I've been with all of them at this point and would not take anything for the experience. Nothing. You talk about growing up in your faith and how that shaped you, but also the book talks a lot about um, some traumatic things that happened in your family. I want to say right here, if it wasn't already clear in my introduction, I want to warn listeners because we are about to talk about sexual abuse. Yes, we are. Um, you, you had said um, in the past you were sexually abused, but you never revealed the identity of the abuser. That is right. Now, in this book, you identify your father. Yes. Um, who is now deceased as the person who abused you. How did you make that decision? And, and how are you feeling now that this will be public? I have thought about this for a number of years, and I have wanted to be able to go a bit deeper with women who have been traumatized in similar ways to my own trauma. And that, understand with me, there is no kind of abuse whatsoever that is not profoundly affecting, none, Mm -hmm. zero. Mm -hmm. When you're protector is your perpetrator it so messes you up or let me make that more personal it so messed me up but i long to be able to say if you have been in this situation i want you to know that i have too and if you made every conceivable poor decision in the wake of it I want you to know that I did too. If you have been prone to self-sabotage every single time something good was about to happen to you um, in your um, adolescence and young adulthood, I want you to know me as well. To go through what you went through and you talk about how you had to confront it. Yes. To then, these many years later, Mm -hmm. see what the reporting about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, it being covered up. How did these things shape your reaction to learning what was going on in your own denomination? Aisha, I don't remember a time in my life that I did not feel an inexplicable shame, even prior to when I remember. I've got so many blackouts in my early childhood, but even before I remember the um, actually being uh, abused in that car that I tell about, I already had a strong sense of shame, unshakable shame. So now fast forward to 2016, and I start there because of the Access Hollywood tapes. Mm -hmm. Yes. The kinds of things 
he described, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about Donald Trump right now, we're not even talking about sexual immorality there. We are talking about sexual criminality. And the fact that it would be downplayed, to me, it felt clear that women were just expendable. So very quickly now, you have the expose on the Southern Baptist churches. And what happens is that I watch a very odd thing occur. There's this diversion instead of dealing with the actual problem. Well, I brought the diversion. I didn't mean to. And I guess we I'll break this down. What happened is that you um, in, in the Southern Baptist Convention, women are not supposed to preach. Correct. And you joked about talking at a service, teaching on at a Mother's service Day. on Mother's Day. And then there was a firestorm. I read, I've read, they was talking about you. They were calling you everything but a child mm -hmm. of God. So you got to understand the peak of the sexual abuse crisis. What becomes most important is to talk about whether or not a woman could speak on a Sunday at a Southern Baptist church. And it has been the way we have seen problems dealt with before. It seems mm -hmm. to me, and I'm talking not about everyone, but I'm talking about a very powerful contingent of people not dealing with the actual problem, but finding another diversion mm -hmm. so that we can consider that to be um, the crisis and not what the actual problem is. And yeah, it was, it was over and nearly killed me. Mm. Uh, it was a death. It was a death. And you have to understand, this is coming from someone who tried her hardest to play by the rules. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I will never know because I'll never have the chance to live it over and see what might have been different. I will tell you that God has been faithful to me mm -hmm. and that in all of the disappointment to come to grips with the idea that some of what had been imposed on me had been out of motives other than those in Scripture. It was misogyny. That it right. wasn't just, it was misogyny. I mean, it's just devastating. It's just devastating. But I will tell you, in all the shaking of it, and disappointing myself, looking back over it and thinking, oh my gosh, it's not just them that taught these things. I taught them. I helped with this. Mm. I was part of this. Mm. Just devastating. You go to an, an Anglican church now, which is about as different as you can get from Baptist. <laughs> yes. But I, have you, I know you've kept your faith. Has it made you more sympathetic to other people who are looking on the outside and say, Oh, yes. These, I am hated by the church. Oh, yes. I am not accepted because of who I am, because of yes. who I love. Has yes. it made you more sympathetic? Absolutely. I know what it is like to be made to feel like you are no longer wanted and you are, you know, outcasts. But I will tell you this, I say this with a smile on my face. I'm just going to keep doing what God's called me to do, and then he'll worry about who listens to it or receives it. You know, I'm in the Jesus thing until the death because he's just my whole life. That's Beth Moore. Her new memoir is called All My Knotted Up Life. Thank you so much for joining us. I had a blast with you, Aisha. Thank you so much.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. And throughout the day, you can follow the news with WBUR whenever, wherever. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. It's 41 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the mid-40s. Tonight, lows will drop to the low 40s. Then tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Monday. A slight chance of some showers tomorrow and highs reaching the mid-50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H dot com. I'm Alzo Slade. They messed up and let me fill in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Paula Poundstone shared her favorite parts of life on the road. I always feel good when you pull into the parking lot of the hotel and they have that sign where they put the letters up themselves, and it says... Phones. We'll talk to several other people who have phones, including actress Rosie Perez on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.